afternoon. Welcome to everybody here, and um, welcome to our folks joining us by VTEL remotely. So um, it's my pleasure to introduce Rick Barth to you. He's giving us our grand rounds today. Before I get into some of the, um, the nice things about Rick, I have to read the following COI statement to everybody. So let me just do that. Um, Dr. Barth has no financial interest in the past, has financial interest in the past 12 months with NIH funding um, via an R21 award. And he's a founding member of Karen Surgical. Um, I also have to note that Dr. Hartford, who's the course director for the CME activity, reports um, that um, there are these um, relationships with industry um, are resolved and that the content um, has been peer-reviewed. Dr. Barth reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device unless otherwise stated, and that he's not um, receiving direct payments from an entity with respect to this um, specific CME activity. So um, on to some of the nice stuff. It really is such a pleasure to introduce Rick Barth to you. Many of you know him. He's a professor of surgery here at Geisel, and he serves as the section chief for general surgery here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He's also a very active member of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Uh, Rick um, studied at Princeton and then at Harvard Medical School. He went on to train at New England Deaconess and the NIH and um, has been here for the vast majority of his career. His current clinical practice is in, I think, very broad-based general surgical oncology, but he has um, specific interest in liver surgery and, of course, in breast surgery. And I'm so excited to hear about this talk because I do think he's on the cutting edge of some of the research happening in this space, and he's going to share with us some of the new perspectives on breast MRI today. So, Rick, okay. thank you. Yep, thank you, Sandra. I'll go from here. Hey, can everybody hear me okay? <clears throat> Thanks, Sandra, for that introduction. Um, so, um, you already heard this disclosure stuff. I've, um, I, this has been funded by a couple grants from Synergy. I wanted to point that out also. They've been very generous. And uh, also from an R21 grant from the, N uh, the NCI and some, and some philanthropy also. Um, so we'll get, we'll start with the patient. Um, so we'll start with a 55-year-old um, woman who has a, a new non-palpable uh, breast mass found on routine screening mammography. Um, a needle biopsy of this ends up showing that she has breast cancer and she chooses to have a lumpectomy. Um, so the morning of the surgery, she has the standard of care for identifying non-palpable breast cancers, a wire localization. Um, it's not so great for her because it's uh, placing the wires a little painful. It's not so great for the surgeon because it's sometimes difficult to coordinate um, the radiology and OR scheduling. But in any case, that's what that's the standard of care. She gets the um, lumpectomy. She gets the wire placed, and then she comes up to the operating room, and what we get in the OR is a woman with a wire coming out of her breast, and then we'll get uh, usually a couple images like this, and um, this is a mammogram image, and this is the wires kind of coming in from lateral here. It's two different dimensions looking at the breast, and it's, so it's not so easy really for us to figure out where this cancer is, okay? But this is the way wire localizations have been done for, for years. Um, and so we do the lumpectomy, and we're trying to minimize the amount of tissue that's taken out, at the same time get the cancer out um, completely with negative margins. So that's the goal of our surgery. But in this case, she had a positive margin. So we had cancer at the edge of what we took out. So she needs it to be re-excised, because if you leave people with positive margins, their chance of having a local recurrence is much higher than if you get negative margins. So this re-excision isn't so good for the patient, because it's increased equality and it's increased emotional stress. She has to have another surgery. She has to have, it's more pain, having another surgery, complications are increased, and there's poor cosmesis if you have to take out more tissue. So we really like to 
We're going to try to optimize the surgery for patients and just take out the right amount of tissue. So, um, so re-excision lumpectomies then are a problem. Um, so they're, they're common, they're bad for the patient, and they're expensive. So um, we do about 160,000 breast-conserving surgeries annually in the United States for non-palpable invasive breast cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ. And about 30% of those have positive margins. So annually in the U.S., we're doing about 50,000 re-excision surgeries like this. So again, it's painful. It results in inferior cosmetic results for patients. So it's not good for patients, but it's also expensive. So the cost of breast cancer re-excision is about $11,000 here at Dartmouth. <clears throat> and so the annual cost of re-excision in the U.S. is about $500 million. So how can we how can we work on this problem? You know what's what's um, what's a possible solution? Well, we can try to use then the most sensitive modality we have for detecting breast cancer, which is MRI. Um, other people have thought of this. Okay, there was actually a big study done in England. Um, it's called the Comey study, where people were randomized to either have an MRI or not have an MRI, and then have their lumpectomy surgery. And in fact, the Comey study didn't show any difference in the positive margin rate. Um, so that was kind of widely publicized and published in Lancet. Um, but the problem with the Comey study, okay, is that all patients had their MRIs done in the prone position. That's the standard way to do MRI, breast MRI. So women are lying on their belly, the breasts are hanging down into a couple of coils, and you get pictures like this. So here's the prone MRI with here's the cancer, and here's the breast outline there. Now, we're not operating on people lying on their bellies, right? We're operating on people lying on their backs. And the breasts look a lot different if you're lying on your belly or if you're lying on your back. And so the innovation that we've used is to try to, to get the MRIs when patients are lying on their back in the supine position. So here's the same patient. Here she is prone with an MRI showing the cancer there. And here's the same patient, same cancer, but now she's supine. And you can see there's all kinds of differences with regard to where you can picture this cancer is in the breast, you know, in terms of both the distance from the chest wall to the tumor and the appearance of the tumor. Here's another example to kind of highlight that. This is, again, this is the same patient with a prone MRI here with here's the cancer, obviously, sitting here. And then here's that same patient lying on her back, okay? So, and here's the cancer right there. So the, all the relationships that we have to rely on as surgeons to figure out where this cancer are are completely different in the supine position. So we felt that, okay, instead of trying to, so we thought that basically the results from that Comey study really don't apply if you, um, if you put the patient in the supine position. So this one thing is to, to get the correct um, location, the, the correct, uh, the correct um, positioning of the patient, but then also you have to transmit that information to the surgeon in the OR so that we can effectively use that, that information to do more accurate surgery. So how have we, how have we um, done that? All right, keep going here, one second. <clears throat> okay, so we've put together a team, okay, and uh, that includes um, Keith and Venkat from Engineering. Oops, sorry. Keith and Venkat from Engineering, um, Drs. Angeles and, and Rosencrans from Surgery, and myself, and Tim Rooney from um, Radiology, and Wendy Wells from Pathology. And what we do is this. So first we get an MRI on patients before surgery. 
And um, so the, the radiologist will then mark the edges of the cancer, as you can see here in yellow, on each MRI slice. And then those slices can be put together to create a 3D image in the computer of where the cancer is in the breast. Then we take the patient to the operating room and we use a digital scanner to basically get a picture, a digital picture of the surface of the breast. And then our engineers merge those supine MRI images into the optical scanned image, thereby giving us a 3D picture of the tumor in the breast on the OR table. So this is if you're looking directly at the breast, and you can see here's the outline, a fairly irregular outline of this patient's particular tumor. And then if you look from the side, sort of, this is like a cutaway view here, where here's the tumor, is this um, grayish structure here, and you can see here's the chest wall reconstructed, and we can actually rotate this around in real time in the OR and see what the distances are then from the tumor to the chest wall, from the tumor to the skin. So you really have a very much a more detailed picture of exactly where that cancer is in the OR. And then what we further do is take um, a, uh, a tracker. So there's this, this, um, this small probe that I'm holding my hand here can be optically tracked by this machine. And if I touch the breast on the screen here, will appear where exactly I am on that virtual image. So I can then mark the edges of the cancer on the skin surface. So here we are then with the, the um, optically tracked probe. I've marked the edges of the cancer on the skin surface. Um, where it projects out, and then I also know the vector that follows this probe right into where the tumor is, and I know how far it is from the skin and how from the chest wall. And then we just basically use that information, okay, to do the surgery rather than relying on the wire that's going to the breast, okay? So this is our sort of first-generation technology. So what we did to decide to figure out whether this would work or not is our, our first trial, basically, we just compared um, the tumor edges that we could identify by palpation. So we took patients who we could feel their cancers, marked the edges of the cancer on this skin surface, and then we used this optical tractor supine MRI image technique and marked the difference between where the edges were based on palpation versus what the imaging di directed us to. So we just had 18 patients in this study, and the average distance between the image generated and the palpated tumor edges was only four millimeters, so we basically concluded that we could at least localize on the skin surface as precisely as palpation using this system. So our next step then was, okay, let's see if we can really use this to, um, to uh, do, do breast cancer surgery rather than using the wire. So we designed a randomized clinical trial where we compared then wire localization, the standard of care, to our supine MRI optical scan method now for non-palpable breast cancer, okay, for patients whose cancers we can't feel. And our main outcome measure was this positive margin rate, and we hypothesized that we could decrease the positive margins from the national average is about 30% and Dartmouth average also down to about 10%. We were fortunate enough to um, secure an R21 grant from the NCI and began enrollment on this trial about two years ago now. So here's the um, preliminary results. It's an ongoing trial um, from our study then, and this is, looks at the positive margin rate. So on the y-axis is the percent of patients with positive margins, and this is the standard of care way, the wire localization. We've got about a 32% positive margin rate, and here we are in our supine MRI method right now at about a 14% positive margin rate. 
So you might say, well, maybe you just took a whole lot more tissue, okay, when you were doing it, you know, doing it with the supine MRI uh, method. But in fact, oh, this didn't come out too well, sorry. Um, in fact, we really have not, okay, in this lighter color, which you can barely see, okay, sorry about this, is the supine MRI volumes, okay, and they're about 10 mLs higher than the volumes that we get with wire localization. So we actually water displace the specimens, and we know exactly what the volume is for, um, for each one of these patients. So we've been able to get a lower positive margin rate, so what looks like a lower positive margin rate so far without taking more tissue out. Why are you going between mean and median? I just put both up there just to describe okay. it. Yeah, that's all. It's actually, it's, um, see, it's actually, it's kind of a light blue, and I'm sorry this didn't show up on this, but okay. here's the, um, the supine MRI is this very light <laughs> color here compared to wire loc there, and that's the mean, and then the medians <laughs> are also just about 10 mLs more. All right, so that's our first-generation technology. But if we were trying to use it, we basically, as we were using it, we are saying, like, well, there, it's good, but there are problems with it, okay? It's not perfect, all right? So um, there were technical issues, okay? One is it does not provide any visual cues under the skin. So I have, I can mark the edges of the cancer on the skin surface, but once we're dissecting in underneath the skin, we don't have any more cues. And so you always have to refer back to the skin surface when you're doing the surgery. We've got to sort of remember this vector direction from the skin to the center of the tuber, tumor, which is pretty challenging if you have one with a large breast, in particular upper lateral or other certain positions. It can be kind of difficult, because if you're off by just a little bit, you might not get into the right spot. And also, we like to sometimes rotate patients around, and you can't really do that too well if you have to remember this vector. But it also requires someone like Benkai Krishnaswamy to be in the OR, and it's not going to be generalizable around the whole country and have a whole bunch of surgeons be able to do this because Benkat's only one person. And so and it's going to be, it would be difficult to program this whole thing into um, something that could, a surgeon, you know, someone who's, who's just simple surgeon like me could just press a button and be able to do the whole deal. So we came up with this, um, with a, a, another way to do it that sort of gets around those technical limitations. So one is, again, we, we obtained the supine MRI before the surgery. And then the images are sent to central processing here in radiology where the tumor edges are identified by a radiologist and the 3D image of the cancer in the breast is made, just like we've done before. But instead now, we've used 3D printing um, to create a bra-like form, which we call the breast cancer locator. That then it's a so it's a plastic bra-like form that can be sterilized and then just placed over the breast at the beginning of the surgery. Um, we've now determined that we don't really need to do that optical scan technique. We can actually make the breast cancer locator directly from the MRI images, which simplifies the workflow. And then we use this locator. We can draw the tumor edges on the skin because we have little holes in the, in the breast cancer locator. I in, it can inject some blue dye about a centimeter from the edges of the cancer within the breast. And then we can also place a wire directly into the center of the tumor, which gives us that vector direction and also has that familiar wire that surgeons are used to. So here's what the breast cancer locator looks like. Um, so again, it's a 3D printed bra-like form. So it has a couple of, so the a nipple will be right here. This is like a, a little opening then so for a mark on the breast. So we have this aligned correctly. This would be the inframammary fold here. It kind of fits snugly across the breast there. And these little holes are where we just take a pen and we can mark the edges of the cancer through these holes. Into this large port here, we can place a wire directly into the middle of the, in, into the, middle of the tumor. 
And then we can use these ports over here, which are, have a, are a particular length and a particular angle so that we can just stick a, a needle in up to the hub and then inject a little column of blue dye into the breast. So it's kind of a cutaway here from the side that shows what we do here. Here's a, a tumor, and we're injecting a little bit of blue dye sort of on the side of, uh, of the cancer. So that's our breast cancer locator device. All right, so we then initiated a clinical trial to see whether um, we can, if, whether this is going to be accurate in patients with breast cancer. And so again, we went back to patients with palpable tumors because um, we can take those cancers out. The breast cancer locator can be completely inaccurate, and it wouldn't matter because we're taking these cancers out based on their palpation, right? So, um, and basically, our outcome measures then um, are, well, did we inject the blue dye on the side of the cancer like we wanted to, or did we inject it right into the middle of the cancer, um, you know, which we didn't want to do. Okay, so this is required some pretty extensive pathology evaluation by Wendy Wells and in particular Elizabeth Rizzo too in pathology um, to slice these um, these specimens nicely so that we can measure these distances. And we also obtained a specimen mammogram. So did we place the wire within the cancer or somewhere else? So here uh, we are in the OR then, um, uh, using a breast cancer locator on a patient. So you can see it just fits right over her breast. And right now I'm just marking the edges of the cancer. And here we are just then injecting a little bit of the blue dye into these ports. And then placing the hook wire into the middle of the breast tumor. And then here we are. So then we just take it off and we can prep the patient. It takes about five minutes at the most to place those cues. I think any surgeon really could do those once they get the breast cancer locator to them. And um, here we have, then I've just connected the dots. So we have an outline of the cancer on the skin surface. We've got this wire here going directly in, giving us the vector direction directly to the center of the tumor. We've got blue dye injected here, so it's just like painting by numbers. It's surgery by colors or something, okay, once we're underneath the skin, seeing where we need to go, and we're ready to go with the surgery. So here we are in the operating room then, doing the lumpectomy, and then here's a specimen, okay? So yeah, this is a little too bright, but it doesn't show the wire too well. So there's a wire coming right out here. He's got a little something hanging on the end of the wire. You can barely see it, but anyway, here's the specimen, the lumpectomy. You can see the blue dye on the edges, okay? This is sort of the edges that define it. The cancer's in the middle of this, and then there's this wire coming out of it. Here's the mammogram. So we always take a mammogram of um, the lumpectomy specimens after it comes out. And this is a little clip that was left by the radiologist to mark where they biopsy the cancer initially. And then you can see that here's the wire coming right into the middle of the cancer here with some normal tissue sort of all around it. And then here's this same patient with um, this, the specimen cut in half in pathology. And again, you can see the blue dots that were injected on the side sort of of the tumor, okay, which is sort of this whitish area in the middle. And this is kind of fatty area around it. So you can see that. And this is, um, so that's a typical sort of um, patient there. So, so far, this is an ongoing trial still. Um, we've treated 17 patients um, with a breast cancer locator. Um, fortunately, it's been safe. Um, we've had no adverse events, like no infections or anything. You could picture we might put that needle right into the lung or something if we didn't have the right uh, length of made on the, uh, uh, on the port, but that hasn't happened, so we haven't had any of this happening. It's been easy to use, um, so all cues were placed within five minutes in all the patients, and um, all the patients 
patients had the tumor removed with negative clinical margins, okay? So even with palpable cancers, we've got about a 30% positive margin rate, so this is encouraging. Obviously, this, that wasn't the, the main point of this study, though. The point of the study was this, is to try to see whether breast cancer locator was accurate so our primary measure of accuracy was, um, did the blue dots encircle and were they outside the tumor edges, okay? So of the 17 patients, this was accomplished, okay, in 16 of them, okay? So we had 16 cases that were accurate based on our primary measure of accuracy. The distance from, then we measured the distance from the blue dot to the tumor edge, and in six, we wanted it to be a centimeter, okay? Um, in 6%, it was um, a little less than a half a centimeter. 75% were within our window we were aiming for, and about 19%, it was a little um, further than that, and that might result a little bit from MRI sort of overestimating the size of some of the tumors. Our secondary measure accuracy was, is the wire in the center of the tumor? And of, our, of all 17 patients, 15 were accurate on this measure. Again, the one that was inaccurate before, I'll talk about that in a second, but in, and that the wire was a little medial to the tumor. In one of the other that were accurate on pathology, it was just slightly superficial to the tumor. I just don't think I pushed it in a little bit far enough. Um, so we learned, you learn a lot from the cases that were inaccurate, okay? So our one inaccurate case um, was, we know it was caused by, it was caused by a, um, the deformation of the breast. So we're sort of doing supine MRIs as a new technique also. And the way it's done is you have these little, look like little tennis um, rackets basically are placed against the breast. And if they indent, the, and then the, the patient is rolled into the MRI machine, and you can kind of picture how that might indent the breast some and sort of cause some deformation. And that's what happened in that one case. Um, and in the beginning, the first um, sort of seven or eight patients, eight or nine patients, excuse me, on this initial study, we were using that scanner and we were sort of adjusting the images. And so what we just did is we, we got rid of, we started making the breast cancer locator directly from the MRI image and got rid of the scanner. And that got rid of this problem, okay? Because now if the breast is indented by the coils a little bit, the breast cancer locator will be made with a little indentation in it. And since it's a rigid plastic thing, it will just mold the breast into this position, um, the same position it was in when the MRI was done at the time of the surgery. So we've done eight cases since then, and all have been uh, completely Accurate. So we think we have the one, the one inaccurate case. I think we've kind of solved that um, that problem. All right. So um, so what are our next steps for the breast cancer locator? Um, so uh, we've um, we want to try to make sure that this can be done by other surgeons and um, not just the surgeons here at Dartmouth Hitchcock. So. We've got surgeons uh, real excited about this technology at the Leahy Clinic, at UMass in Worcester. Um, there's a hospital in Stanford, Connecticut, um, in, and then that are sort of basically breast centers, those places that are, are gonna um, be, be testing this as well. And then um, we have some general surgeons that are in the DH system in Nashua and Keene, just to see if you know people who do not as frequently do breast cancer, whether they can also do this. And again, it's gonna be with palpable cancers, and we're basically designing this to see if it's feasible to use this at multiple sites so people get their MRIs on their local MRI machines the information gets sent here we create the uh, we fabricate the BCL sterilize it send it to them and then they use it in the operating room so, um, so this is kind of a feasibility study for for multiple institutions using it 
And then our, our goal then after we've completed this, hopefully in the, in the next uh, six to nine months, is to get going a multi-institutional randomized pivotal clinical trial comparing the breast cancer locator to wire localization, very similar to what we've just been doing here at Dartmouth, comparing our first generation technology to wire localization. And we feel that this is going to be at least as accurate as our, um, as our optical tracking system because not only do we have, because in the optical tracking system, we just have the edges of the cancer mark. So now we're going to have the edges of the cancer mark. We're going to know that vector really well. Um, and we're also going to have the blue dye under the skin to, um, to guide us with our surgery. So we're optimistic that this will um, show a difference between in the positive margin rate. So we've designed this study, about 200 total patients with enough power to detect uh, a decrease in the positive margin rate from about 25% to 10%. There are, you know, this is a, this is like a sort of an important issue in, uh, in breast cancer surgery, and um, there are other techniques and technologies that have been developed. Um, there was one paper in the New England Journal actually a year ago that talked um, about shaved margin technique of surgery. So what they do in this is the surgeon does the lumpectomy, and then they just take out more tissue all around. They take another centimeter of tissue all around the whole cavity. They take it like in six different um, margins, and, they, and this is called the shaved margin technique. Um, it did show you could decrease the positive margin rate, but, the ex, but at the expense of taking out a lot more tissue, okay? And it sort of inherently bothers me just to kind of randomly take more tissue out that, you know, and I'd rather make it a lot more precise than that, okay? So, you know, I think um, women deserve better than the shaved margin surgery technique, okay? Um, there are other techniques is a group in Israel developed um, a way to optically evaluate the surface edges, looking for tumor cells with optical techniques, and um, that's on the market. It's um, not so great. It's got a lot of false positives associated with it, and there haven't really been that many people that have taken up this technology. There's another technique that's um, out there. It's um, instead of um, placing like a little metal clip in there and then placing a wire the morning of surgery, um, another group is advocating putting these little um, seeds in that can be detected by radio frequency um, detector. And you can do the surgery that way. So it gets rid of the wire, but it really doesn't tell anybody anything. So it gets rid of that wire procedure, so it's a little more convenient for the surgeon and the timing, and it's less painful for the patient. So it's, it's actually catching on, but it doesn't really tell the surgeon any more about where the edges of the cancer are. So I think that, um, I think it's, that has limitations. I think that, that, uh, that we'll overcome there too. So, um, so anyway, all right, so that's the first half of the talk. Okay, now I'm gonna move on to part two, okay? Um, and uh, talk a little bit about another aspect of MRI. So this aspect, of the, what we talked about first was the use of MRI and sort of helping us then get a better picture of where the cancer is and be able to take it out and, and uh, have a higher chance of having a negative margin. This, um, this other aspect, then, of MRI is trying to detect other cancers in the, in the breast. And so, again, we'll start with a patient here. We've got, this is a patient that I saw about a year ago. She's a 56-year-old high school teacher. Um, came in, she had a screening mammogram, which is this over here, that showed um, this 1.2-centimeter uh, mass in her up, left upper outer breast, okay? And a, and a core biopsy of, the, of this showed cancer. Um, there's no other cancer seen in this breast on mammography or by physical exam. So she had an MRI done, 
And here's the MRI, and in one slice of the MRI, you can see there's the cancer, okay? That cancer is really there. But then, if you slice a little bit more medially, just take another slice down in, boom, there's this other cancer down over here, all right? So a second lesion was found, and biopsy of this other thing also was cancer. So this was totally, you know, not seen on mammography or by physical exam. It was just picked up on MRI. Well, how often does this happen, right? Um, so... So mammography is not able to detect all cancerous lesions in the breast. Um, actually, pathology studies have shown that like up to 40% of patients have a, a mammographically occult invasive cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ greater than two centimeters away from the primary cancer in that breast, okay? And the thing is, MRI is more sensitive, and it's able to detect some of these mammographically occult lesions. Um, so a ton of studies have been done on this, okay? So there's a meta-analysis of 50 studies that looked at this question involving over 10,000 patients and showed that MRI detected additional cancers in the ipsilateral breast in between 11 and 14% of patients. So I think we have really solid data that that's the case, okay? So that if I'm talking to a patient and, you know, they ask, they ask me, well, you know, should we get an MRI or not? I say, well, between, you know, 10 15% of patients are going to have another cancer found in your breast, okay, if you end up doing MRI. It finds cancer in the opposite, the contralateral breast, in about 5% of the patients also. But the question we want to say is, well, does finding these other occult lesions by MRI and then obviously removing them, okay, result in a lower in-breast recurrence rate or does radiation and systemic therapy, chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, adequately treat these occult lesions? Okay, so that's an important question, right? So, yeah, they're going to have, say, 10 to 15 patients are going to have other cancers there, but is it just, can it just be treated with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and whatever, if they, if they get them or, or, or not? Well, I think an important issue is, like, how big are these other cancers, right? Are they just 2-millimeter cancers, or are they bigger than that? So if you do a literature search on this and look up the papers, there's not a lot on this really, okay? But there are these five papers here, and they detected 38, 23, or 41 of the largest studies. And here's the median diameter of those cancers in these papers. So 10 millimeters, 15 millimeters, 11 millimeters. And here's the range of those. The smaller studies had a couple of um, smaller median diameters. But overall, I think you can think of it's about the median size is about a centimeter, okay? So a centimeter actually is pretty big. A lot of the cancers that we're detecting are about a centimeter. And if you find a centimeter cancer in someone, the recommendation is to excise that, to do surgery. It's not just to do you know, radiation therapy and hormonal therapy on that tumor. All right. <clears throat> So trying to get this question then, again, does identification removal of these decrease the in-breast tumor recurrence rate? Just we'll abbreviate that IBTR. So we did a literature review. There are no randomized clinical trials that have addressed this question, okay? Um, here are the retrospective and matched cohort studies that have looked at this. So basically, they just have compared patients who have had an MRI pre-op to ones that haven't had an MRI preoperatively. <clears throat> So, and they um, sort of, they've basically, if you, there's pretty good numbers of patients in these studies, and this is the in-breast tumor recurrence rate then in patients who got the MRI, and here's the in-breast tumor recurrence rate in patients who didn't have the MRI. Um, and then here's the univariate and multivariate p-values. Um, so in this first study here, there was a lower in-breast tumor recurrence rate um, if you had an MRI, um, and that was highly statistically significant. In these studies, there was, there was no statistical 
statistical significance on univariate analysis. Looking at this, though, to my eye, at least there's a little higher sort of recurrence rate in the patients that didn't get an MRI. Um, in this study, it was higher and was statistically significant on univariate analysis. This is just DCIS patients, actually, in this study here. There was no difference at all. In two matched cohort studies, then there was a higher rate in the MRI group, but it wasn't statistically significant, and this one was statistically significant. So in these matched cohorts, where they tried to match the two groups really carefully. Um, in, there's only one of these studies that did a multi, this study did a multivariate analysis, and it was not statistically significant. <clears throat> So we thought, all right, let's, let's look at this at Dartmouth. And the reason why we basically felt that, looked in the literature view, that it was sort of uncertain. There was some trends going on here, and I think it's basically, I think it's best to say it was just uncertain whether MRI will decrease your long-term local recurrence rate based on the literature. So... Um, we have a, a unique situation here at Dartmouth where back when we found out that MRI was finding all these other cancers in the breast and that it affected the way we did surgery, we basically had a consensus that we were going to get preoperative MRI and basically all our patients with new invasive um, breast cancer diagnosis um, in 2006. And in 2008, we extended it to DCIS. So we had kind of a, a nice natural history experiment here where you can see here's the percentage of patients who are having breast conserving surgery with invasive cancer who had a preoperative MRI over time at Dartmouth. And you can see that in 2000, up here, it was hardly anyone. In 2006, we basically decided to get it on everybody. And then we've pretty much we've done a pretty good job. Like 80% will end up having MRIs done compared to here. So we wanted to compare these patients to patients here, thinking that <clears throat> they might be less biased than studies that just looked at people who had MRI and didn't have an MRI, basically because we didn't get MRI on almost everybody and then did get MRI on almost everybody. And here's DCIS. In 2008, we decided to get MRIs on patients with DCIS, and again, went up to there, and then before, it had hardly been anybody. All right. <clears throat> So, so our, our, our goals then of this were to see what, what the story was with getting MRI versus not in our patients at Dartmouth, and also to look at the size of those additional lipsolateral breast cancers and, um, and, uh, and see if uh, we could add a little something to literature on that too. So um, we basically reviewed this comprehensive breast program database. Um, all patients undergoing margin-negative breast-conserving treatment from 2000 to 2010, which is 1,396 patients, um, looked at various characteristics of those patients. And so here's we, in this table, we kind of compare some of the baseline characteristics. So we have 1,000 patients with invasive cancer and 360 with DCIS. And about 500 had an MRI, 500 didn't have an MRI for the invasive cancer patients. There was very little difference in the, there was no difference in the age or the size of the primary cancers or whether they had positive nodes or not. What we did notice, though, was that there was some difference in the percentage of patients who were treated with endocrine therapy. So the MRI patients, again, which are, a little, are more, um, uh, they were, they're done later, uh, sort of in time, than these patients, a little more common to, to be treated with endocrine therapy, more common to be treated with adjuvant chemotherapy, a little more common to be treated with radiation therapy. So, um, so there are differences between the groups here. With DCIS patients, and the age of the patients were the same, size of the tumors were the same, same, no statistically significant differences between the proportion that were treated with either endocrine or radiation therapy in, uh, in the DCIS patients. All right, so what did we find? 
Um, so what these curves then show is on the y-axis is the proportion of patients with a recurrence, okay, and then here's um, the time to recurrence over in months. And down here we have the number of patients in each group, and you can see as it goes over time. So in the red dot, the red dashes are patients who did not have an MRI, and in the blue are patients who had an MRI. So if you look at the people that didn't have an MRI then, at five years their local recurrence rate was 5.3%, and at eight years it was 8%. Patients that did have an MRI, it was 3.7% and 4%. Okay, so that's what these show. And this was statistically significant if you look at all patients who had either invasive cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ. Okay, just the invasive cancer patients then. Again, it's the same type of a curve. This is not statistically significant. At five years, it was about the same rate, about 4.5%. Here's the curve. It's kind of going here. It comes together at five years, then comes out again here a little bit. So at eight years, the recurrent, in-breast recurrence rate was about 7% in the group that didn't get an MRI and about 4% in the group that did get an MRI. Patients with ductal carcinoma in situ. <clears throat> There are, um, there's a P equals 0.06. Uh, it's a statistic evaluation of this Kaplan-Meier curve. So at um, seven years, if you didn't have an MRI, your chance of having an in-breast recurrence was 7%. If you had an MRI, it was 1.8%. And at eight years, it was 10.9% versus 3.6%. But in particular, you can look at the patients with DCIS who did not undergo radiation. Okay, again, these patients so um, had a significant number of patients who were treated with, um, with say, hormonal therapy alone or maybe no therapy alone after excision for DCIS. If you didn't have an MRI, 18% of those patients have an in-breast recurrence by five years, whereas actually none of the patients that had an MRI had an in-breast recurrence at eight years. And again, we have relatively small numbers on this, so that even this big, this big difference is, is not significant. Right, we also want to look at those, again, in our population, um, what the size of those ipsilateral lesions were. Um, and in our, so we detected a total of 100, in the 657 patients who had MRI, an, an additional lesion was detected in about 15% of those patients. Um, and um, 66 of those additional lesions were malignant. So that means, so you know, you might say, well, it's, it's a pain to get these MRIs because you have to have so many biopsies and everything. But in fact, two-thirds of the patients who had an additional lesion detected, when they got a biopsy, it showed that it was either invasive cancer or DCIS. Um, so it's a pretty high yield of these lesions. Good job by our radiologists who are calling these things. Um, of the patients, so overall, 10% then of the patients undergoing MRI had additional malignant lesions identified and continued with their breast conserving surgery. So some patients who had them identified MRI might have decided to have a mastectomy, but we've got a pretty large number of patients then who ended up still deciding to have, okay, both the first lesion taken out and their other occult lesion that was um, detected by MRI removed with a lumpectomy. So these people had sort of like two lump, they had two lumpectomies and then um, radiation therapy. Well, what did we find to be the size in these 66 patients um, of the additional cancers? Well, the median size was a centimeter, so these are fairly um, sizable tumors. Again, and the mean size of the additional cancers was 1.5 centimeters, so they're not two millimeter cancers. 
All right, and I just wanted to look a little more at this subgroup of patients then that had these additional um, lesions found. So um, this is then looking at the, what happens to those patients who had additional lesions found, comparing them to patients who didn't have additional lesions found on their MRI. So in blue are the patients with additional lesions, and this is their recurrence rate, so it's actually 13% at five years compared to patients who didn't have additional lesions found, whose recurrence rate was only 1.9%. Okay, so, um, and that was highly statistically significant. So by, by doing the MRI, you're identifying patients who have a higher chance of in-breast recurrence. And you can actually feel pretty good about doing lumpectomies on these patients because they have really a very low chance of having um, an in-breast recurrence. And if that's what we were trying to do with breast-conserving surgery is identify patients who are going to do well with lumpectomy and, um, and additional adjuvant therapy, um, well, patients who don't have additional lesions on MRI, or you can feel pretty confident about that. We also looked at patients then who had additional cancers found on MRI, so the lesions ended up being malignant. And there again, there was a statistically significant difference in the chance of the cancer um, of or developing another cancer or a recurrence in their breasts, and that was 10% versus about 3%. You can see pretty marked difference in those, um, in those curves. We did multivariate analysis on this um, data then because as I showed in the first slide, there were differences in treatment between the groups that got MRI and didn't get MRI. So again, on univariate analysis, doing an MRI, we had a lower relative risk of recurrence in the breast if we did the MRI. That was statistically significant. But that was not statistically significant on multivariate analysis where the relative risk was 0.7 and the confidence interval um, uh, went over one. For adjuvant therapies, endocrine therapy, hormonal therapy, and um, radiation therapy on univariate analysis and on multivariate analysis did lead to a lower local recurrence rate. Chemotherapy did not affect, in our patients anyway, did not affect the, uh, the risk of, local rec of in, in breast recurrence um, in patients. So just in conclusions for part two then, um, in patients with invasive cancer, the use of preoperative MRI was not associated with a decrease in breast recurrence rate by multivariate analysis. Um, in patients with DCIS, there was a trend toward a lower in-breast recurrence rate, especially if the patients did not receive adjuvant radiation therapy. And so I'd sort of take away that MRI may be useful to test, test to minimize in-breast recurrence rate of DCIS patients, particularly those who do not desire adjuvant radiation therapy. These additional lateral cancers detected by MRI are pretty large, um, a centimeter. Now, this, our, this study is the largest in the literature that looks at the number, the size of these lesions. Um, and patients who undergo MRI and do not have additional lesions or cancers identified have a very low in-breast tumor recurrence rate at five years. When compared to the, the recurrence rate in patients who had an MRI and had additional lesions they detected, or patients who did not have an MRI at all. So I think MRI is a useful test then to identify early stage breast cancer patients who have a very low risk of in-breast tumor recurrence after breast conserving surgery, and to identify patients with a high risk of in-breast tumor recurrence who may benefit from mastectomy. So um, this has definitely impacted how I talk to patients who have another cancer found in their breast um, after, because an MRI has detected that other cancer in the breast, and talking to them about their risk of recurring in the breast if they decide to have two lumpectomies and radiation therapy, so it's been helpful to have this data. And, uh, and so that's about it. So I'd like to um, really thank uh, collaborators um, 
The uh, role of MRI in local recurrence um, work is uh, worked by Maureen Hill, Julia Beeman, um, uh, medical student Kushbu, and, and Steph Holobar. Um, and then our supine MRI breast cancer locator studies, uh, Venkat, um, Krishna Swami, Keith Paulson, Tim Rooney, Becky Zerbier, Wendy Wells, Elizabeth Rizzo, John Marotti, Candice Black, Christina Angeles, and Carrie Rosencrantz. So and here's our Prouty team from uh, 2016. So, happy to answer any questions. <laughs> yes? After you um, started the MRI pre-op um, policy, how did your rates of mastectomy change? Did they go up? Yeah, no, just slightly. So they went up about three percent. Um, so it's it's the uh, an absolute rate of three percent. So the relative rate is a little bit higher than that. But I think around about forty, around about thirty-eight or forty percent of our patients end up having mastectomies, and so it went up from like thirty-seven to forty or something like that. So it was a very small increase. Because we don't, I think, or in general, my practice anyway, and I think a lot of the other surgeons will, if another lesion's identified in MRI, we'll be biopsying it, okay? So in most of the patients. Um, so it will be, so it's, so we're not doing sort of mastectomies, you know, for, because uh, of concern about some other lesion that's questionable. Most of the patients. Yes? Did you figure out if the second lesion was have the same ER status, or was it even from the same tumor that spread, or is it just a new? Yeah, so a lot, so, yeah, a lot of time, um, a lot, most cancers are, or anyway, a high proportion of cancers are ER positive, so doing that wouldn't, um, wouldn't really tell you whether it's a different cancer or, or not. Um, but these, a lot of these tumors are what are called multicentric. They are in another part of the breast, and they are distinct um, tumors that are separate from this. So it's, uh, most of these lesions are going to, are um, sort of just separate, distinct tumors that are in the breast. Like that patient, that example that I showed you, that was like that. Sometimes you can have more of a multifocal tumor where there might be like a satellite lesion that's a around the primary tumor that maybe is a, you know, two or say three centimeters away or something, that might be the same histology and type as the initial primary tumor. Yes? Um, we talked about, you know, pre-op breast MRI. What about using it in place of x-ray for screening mm -hmm. that created different outcomes? I mean, you're saying it detects the second lesion when you already have one on the screening x-ray, right? What did you detect lesions right. that weren't detected on screening? So, um, so there's um, so I mean, Dr. Rooney might want to talk about this a little bit, but there is a, there's a study actually that's that's been open across the country to sort of evaluate that, and it's using a very um, if I understand this right, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a very um, uh, quick MRI that's done. Um, so it's uh, um, to be able to because standard MRIs are probably 40, 30, 40 minutes long. Our MRIs we do are about 15 minute MRIs for the supine MRI that we do, um, but this, um, so an issue has to do with the time of that, you know, to be able to do, so that's a big issue. So, but this, this study that's evaluating that question um, does use a, a very short, um, uh, short time for MRI to evaluate um, uh, MRI and screening. And I, so that's experimental right now. It's not, we do do, MRI is recommended by the NCCN for patients who are at very high risk for, um, for breast cancer. So patients who have, who decide not to have prophylactic mastectomies, who are BRCA, carriers or other women who have had mantle radiation therapy and several other conditions where they have a high high lifetime risk of developing breast cancer those patients it's recommended to follow them with MRI because it's more sensitive they can pick up breast cancer earlier yes so you missed the margin yeah uh, with the use of MRI yeah what's the underlying 
And I guess it's a two-part question. I'm, I'm thinking, can you take advantage that the breast doesn't look the same, supine and prone? Can you do it both ways and actually get it? Can you triangulate off of that and basically get an even more precise image? Yeah, I think so. So why, right? Why do we have some? Um, uh, you know, sort of positive margins, even when we have like sort of the supine MRI to be able to see things and everything. Um, uh, so one thing is, you know, with there might be limitations to the technique. I mean, we just didn't um, uh, sort of, you know, the way it's being done now, we didn't triangulate down exactly correctly. So there might, can, you know, there can be surgical really problems with that. It's just still translating that image into the actual what we take out can be, not be so good. That's one potential reason for uh, positive margins. The other can be that just the MRI doesn't detect um, the, uh, the malignancy. I mean, I had a patient I did last week um, who had a positive margin, and we got the lumpectomy, and it looked, I was like, it was perfect. Like, the, the clip was right smack in the middle. It, like, it looked beautiful. And then it came back, there was some ductal cards. All the invasive cancer was widely excised with an 8-millimeter margin, but we had a little focus of DCIS at one of the margins um, that just wasn't seen by MRI. Okay, so MRI is our most sensitive method, but it's not going to detect everything. Um, you know, it's not going to be perfect. So I think, I think we're going to be able to get the positive margin rate down to around 10%, but I think because of some, even if everything mechanically and technically is perfect, there's going to be some limitations into what we can see on MRI. So I don't think we're going to be able to get it a lot lower than that. Most of the patients... In our um, in our supine MRI study um, that had positive margins, it was DC, it was DCIS that was at the edge, um, and or very close to the edge. So yeah, that was a positive margin in most of the cases. So I think that is it's uh, that's one of the limitations. Yeah. All right, one more question. Would, yeah. would you ever consider like an isotropic expansion off of what you see on the MRI, almost like the shape technique for this field? maybe a little bit more modest, yeah. and then you would just take out a slightly larger volume. Well, that's what we do. That's what we do, basically. So we, we've got the edges of the cancer, and then, I, like on that one picture, I actually drew a centimeter around it. So when I'm going in, I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for about a centimeter around when I'm taking stuff out, and we inject the blue dye. Ideally, it will be a centimeter from the edges of the cancer, so that when we're going around, we're trying to get out the cancer with, we're aiming for about a centimeter all around it, so that hopefully our margins will be negative. Um, so that's Exactly, and we can calculate out like sort of the ideal volume. So uh, Venkat will, on the computer, figure out the tumor volume and then figure and then add it, like you were talking about doing that expansion, a centimeter in every dimension, and say, okay, the, the perfect volume for this would be 70 mLs, you know, and then we see what we can do with the excision. But that's what we're aiming for, is to try to take out the perfect volume and do the excision precisely. Like, oh, a lot of surgery is very precise, you know, like um, that we do, but breast surgery just really isn't, you know, and so we're trying to improve the precision of breast cancer surgery, really, with this. Cool. Okay, thanks, everyone.